Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to see you all here um, on this lovely Sunday evening. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Aaron. I'm one of our community group leaders here at Refuge. Uh, and today we are uh, picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in, the, in our study of the Gospel of John in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. And as we continue on in this, in this gospel, um, as we look at our passage together tonight, you need to know that there is really just one central idea in this passage, just one, that Jesus illustrates in three key ways. And that point is this, that Jesus is God. I know it's, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. That's the main point that we've got today. Jesus is God, fully equal to his Father. And this is important because Jesus is not simply a human being, one who is, even one that is uniquely empowered by God, like many of the prophets that, that we read about in the Old Testament. And he is not a lesser kind of divine being like the, the demigods of Greek mythology. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. God the Son, who is one with God the Father. God the Son, who is equal to God the Father, and yet also distinct from God the Father. And this is important for us to, to understand tonight, because Jesus is the Word. He is the one who was with God, and was fully God, and was with God from the beginning. The one through whom all things were made, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created, says John 1, 1 to 3. He is the one who said, before Abraham was, I am, in John eight fifty eight, taking on the name of God for himself. Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus said that if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. And the author of Hebrews, whoever that person is, said that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And as we heard a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us when we looked at, at uh, the preceding verses in this chapter, when we were heard in John 5.18, it was for that reason that the Jewish leaders were trying even harder than they were before to kill him. Because he was calling God his own father and thus making himself equal with God. Now, when Dustin preached on that, he, he described that, that as really this, this hinge point in, in the, not just in the chapter, but in the, in the book. And that is absolutely correct because John's whole gospel rests on that point. And in fact, the entire history of the universe rests on that point, that Jesus, God the Son, is God. And yet, we live in a world where it's not uncommon at all for people to very confidently assert that Jesus never claimed to be God. 
Someone who does that quite regularly is a, uh, is a former Christian and best-selling author named Bart Ehrman, who um, has made an entire career out of denying the deity of Jesus and the trustworthiness of Scripture, declaring the godness of Jesus to be a later invention of his followers. And Ehrman, of course, is not alone in that. He's just following in the footsteps of generations of academics who've done the same thing who all understood that if you can discredit the deity of Jesus, you can dismiss the claims of Christianity. And if you can't do that, well, then you just have to kill him, and, which is what the Jewish leaders tried to do. And having just celebrated Easter this past week and being here week in and week out, know because of what happened after they tried to kill Jesus, we know how well that worked out, didn't, don't we? But in this passage, Jesus uh, is, doing the, is doing this thing. Jesus in this passage and in the entirety of John's gospel and in the rest of the New Testament along with it, he is giving us no room for ambiguity. Jesus is God, fully equal to his Father. And so in the discourse that we're going to read in the, in the verses ahead, we're going to see him describe this equality with the Father in three distinct ways. That Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. That Jesus is one with the Father in his authority to give life. And that Jesus is one with the Father in his authority to judge. So let's pray and then we're going to dig into the text. So Father, thank you that we get to be together tonight to celebrate as we do week in and week out, the, the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Father, help us to look at Jesus tonight with fresh eyes. For those of us who, are, who believe the gospel, who believe that Jesus died and rose and um, for our sins that we would, that our hearts would be captured anew by the truths that we hear tonight. And that for those of us who maybe don't know exactly where we, where we stand on who Jesus is and what he has done, that we will see the truth for what it is. God, help me to Stay out of your way as, as, as you work through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 19, Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, this indicator that Jesus is saying, hey, pay attention, this is really, really important the son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he does and will show him greater deeds than these so that you will be amazed. And so right away, we are confronted with something that is honestly kind of confusing in this passage, something that on its face seems to borderline contradict this idea that Jesus is God with the Father. Because in verse 19, it says that 
The son can do nothing of his own initiative, but only what he sees his father doing. Now, this is a statement that we need to be really careful about because if we misunderstand it, we can really easily fall off a cliff because we're dealing with things that relate to the nature of God. And this is key to something that um, we're going to, that you've heard me reference a little bit already. We're going to go into a little bit more here, which is this idea of the Trinity. Now, that's not a word that you're going to find anywhere in your Bible, but you will find it conceptually on through the entirety of it. The Trinity is theological shorthand to say that God is one in essence and three in person, that, that, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that, for example, in Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We see it also at Jesus' baptism and in numerous other places throughout the scriptures. Now, each of these, of these persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all are fully and equally God. They are perfectly and eternally united in their essence and will, and yet distinct from one another. And so, that is really the simplest and shortest way to explain that truth. And so, if you are scratching your head over how exactly all that works, let me just encourage you, because this is a mystery, and it's one that's been perplexing Christians for, oh, you know, give or take 2,000 years. So if you're confused, you're in good company. But I bring that up because when we read this passage, when we read that verse that the son can do nothing of his own initiative, but only what he sees his father doing, we might do so and come away thinking that Jesus is somehow lesser than, than God. And that's understandable because of the way that we think about these words as Western people. To us, that's what it would mean to say if I, to, if I said, I can do nothing of my own initiative, especially in a society that values or even idolizes um, the value of self-initiative and self-sufficiency the way that ours does. But if we read this verse that way, that's the cliff that we fall off of. Because we miss something really, really beautiful. This passage is an exaltation of the Son. Because it's one that says that Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. Jesus is declaring his very godness, his equality with the Father when he says after that verse, For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the, the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he does and will show him greater deeds than these so that you will be amazed. This is a tremendous statement for Jesus to make. Everything he does, literally everything he does is a reflection of the Father. What the Father does, the Son does. So whom the son heals, or whom the father heals, the son heals. What the, the father provides, the son provides. What the father restores, the son restores. And why is this the case? It's because of the love of the father for the son. The father loves the son and shows him everything that he does. 
So there is nothing that is hidden from the Son. There that nothing that is secret from him. So great is the love between the Father and the Son that they are one in their actions. And that's important for us to consider as we, as we for us as we consider the rest of this passage and really the rest of John's gospel as well. We have to remember that the Father and the Son are never at odds. They're always united in their intentions and in their actions. It was the Father's joy to send the Son, and it was the Son's joy to do the will of the Father, to reveal what the Father is like to us, to the degree that, as Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary on this, that when his disciples saw Jesus smile, they saw the Father's smile. They heard the Father's teaching. They observed the Father's tender touch and trembled before his wrath. Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. And not only that, he calls us to be one with him and with one another in the same way that he and the Father are one. To be as Philippians 2 says, of the same mind, having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. And truthfully, using the word calling in this isn't strong enough because Jesus didn't simply call for us to be, to be one with one another in the way that he and the Father are one. Jesus prayed explicitly for this in John 17, 20 to 21. Um, before he went to the cross, as he prayed for his disciples, not just the disciples that were physically present with him in that moment, but for all who had not yet come, including all of us in this room who believe the gospel today, he said, I am not praying only on their behalf, that those who, those who are present, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that's us, that they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us and so that the world will believe that you sent me. And he prayed this. He desired this. He calls us to this because this is how the world will know that we are his. By our love for one another. Our unity in the gospel is what makes us different from the world. Different from anything else that is out there. Doing what the Father and the Son do. Demonstrating God's love and compassion in our words and our actions everywhere we go. And so before we go on any further in this passage, let's just consider, let's just consider this. Do, do we share that, that kind of unity? Do we, do we desire it? Is that what we want as a people? What are we tempted to allow to divide us? And what might we have already allowed to poison our hearts in that way? These are, these are not easy questions to ask, but they are important ones. And so when we, when we pause in our service 
when we pause in our worship time together to take communion, to remember the body and blood of Jesus shed and broken for our sins, take some time and consider those things. But Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And as we see in the next verses, Jesus had a very specific sort of action in mind when he contended against the Jewish leaders, to give life and to judge. And so that takes us to our second point, that Jesus is one with the Father in his authority to give life. And so just as a heads up, as we get into this next section here, we're going to do a little bit of jumping around um, in in our verses here. Um, so we're not going to, so we're going to look at verses 20, 21, 24, and 25. We're going to jump back to 22, 26, and 30, and then we're going to wrap up with 23. So listen to this. For just as the Father raised the, raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. And I tell you the solemn truth, the one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. And I tell you the solemn truth, the time is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So we've seen in the past that Jesus has the power to heal. And remember, this whole engagement with the Pharisees that that is happening in John 5 is happening because Jesus healed a man on a Sabbath. Jesus healed him because the Father heals. He does what his Father does. And just as the Father gives life, Jesus gives new life. And to whom? To whomever he wishes. And he's told us, who does he wish? All who will believe. Now this itself is an astounding claim, something that we really need to dig into. For those of us who are Christians or those who've been around the language of Christianity for for a while, there might not seem to be anything that's too wildly contentious or astounding about this. I mean, it fits with what we understand about Jesus. But for those hearing this at that time, Jesus was challenging their assumptions about who and what the Messiah was or is, this promised rescuer that God was going to send, what he was to be. They had in mind a Messiah, a rescuer, who would be an earthly ruler, a political figure, a king, a man who did the will of God and led the people to do the will of God. But, uh, but that man would still just be a man. Jesus was claiming here, by saying that he, had the, that he has the authority to give life. He was claiming a divine prerogative. He can give life to whomever he wishes. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what we celebrate, not just at Easter, but every single week we gather as God's people. That all who hear his voice, who believe in the one who sent him, will fear no condemnation. Because they've crossed over from death to life. And not only that, Jesus said that a time was coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And from that 
from the moment that Jesus began his ministry to today, that time that he said is here is now. This is an invitation from Jesus to hear his voice and to listen, to believe in the one who sent him, his father, to move from death to eternal life because that is what the gospel is all about. That is what Jesus came to do in the world and anyone who hears the voice of the son of God and believes will live. So let me ask you something. Do you believe that? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope that you will hear those words and that you will truly believe them, that you will move from death to life today. And if you want to talk about this, if you have questions or want someone to pray with you, want to, want to figure this stuff out, you can come find me when we take communion in a little while. You can find Dustin, David, Steve's around as well. Any, if you came with somebody, anyone, we would we are all here to help. But for the rest of us, remember, this is not just for those out there, those who haven't heard the gospel, those who haven't responded in faith. Jesus' call to life is for us too. We need to understand this. We need to realize that Jesus' call isn't just for people who don't believe. It's for the people who say they do as well. Because there are so many of us who know the vocabulary, who know the right words and actions, people who look like they're, they're alive, but in truth may actually be dead. And in hearing these words, Jesus offers us an opportunity to examine ourselves, to consider our ways, to ask ourselves, do we really believe what we say we believe? When we hear the voice of the Son in the pages of Scripture, this is a way, to, this is a way to, to, to give yourself a heart check. Think about how you respond. How do, we all, how do we respond when we hear Him in Scripture? Are His words there? Are they life-giving? Are they empowering? Are they refreshing? Are they encouraging? Are they convicting and challenging are our hearts enraptured more by the gospel than by whatever controversies brewing in society at this particular moment? Or when we come to this book, is it just words? Again, don't be too quick to skip past that question. Don't be too quick to answer. Don't rush examining your heart on this. Take some time to consider carefully. Again, when we take communion, that's a great time to do some business with God, to ask him to bring those things that draw our eyes away from Jesus to mind and to uproot whatever hooks they have in our hearts. Jesus is one with the Father in his actions. Jesus is one with the Father in his authority to give life but he's also one with the Father in his authority to judge. We see that in the next set of verses here. Starting in verse 22. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but he has assigned all judgment to the Son. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, thus he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out the ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life and the ones who have done what is evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. So Jesus, in, his pow- in all of his godness, he has that power over life and death, and he has power over judgment. And what he's describing here should remind us of similar passages in other gospels as well as the epistles. Because this is a description of Jesus' final judgment, the, the time when all the dead will rise, when Jesus will commend those who have done good to the resurrection that results in eternal life. That is life with God as one of his people for all of eternity in a new creation. And those who have done evil will experience a resurrection that results in condemnation. So, what does Jesus mean by the ones who have done what is good and the ones who have done what is evil? To our ears, that can sound an awful lot like what some might call salvation by works. This idea that What we do determines our eternal destiny, that we can work our way into favor with God. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not a self-salvation project. The kingdom of God cannot be entered by virtue of being good because none of us can ever be good enough to do that. But here's the thing. In the gospel, we actually are saved by works. But it's by the works of Jesus, not our own. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father, doing all that the Father did because we cannot. And as Christians, we are called to do good, to obey God's commands. And that is not a suggestion That is a command. We are commanded to obey what the Father tells us to do, what God tells us to do. But our good works as believers, as people who've believed the gospel, our obedience is not the basis of our salvation. Our obedience is the fruit of our salvation. So we don't do good in order to be saved. We do good because we have been saved. Our works reveal what we are. The same is true when it comes to those who do evil. What we do, whether it's the most despicable evil that you can think of or the most mundanely normal act done apart from a desire to please and honor God, is proof of our condemnation. And that might sound really super judgmental, but again, here's the thing. I'm not the one saying that. That's Jesus saying that. 
And that's challenging us, challenging it for us to hear because the judgment of God is not something that any of us really like to talk about, especially Christians. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that we too often hear the word judgment and we immediately think of the image of a cartoonish judgmental blowhard. The, the sort who screams as loudly as possible down on Broadway um, about all that God, God hates and calls everyone to repent or perish. The sort that pickets a funeral or celebrates and perhaps even hopes for the death of people who live apart from God. And on the off chance that you have an image like that in your head, again, especially if you're not a Christian, or you're here and you've been a Christian a while and you've, you've got some baggage around even just the word Christian, you need to know that that kind of judgmentalism is not the way of Jesus. Now, the way of Jesus is not called evil good, and it doesn't shy away from expecting that those who believe would live in obedience to God's commands. That's what the world wants us to do on so many fronts at every moment, including today. And we can't do that. We can't accept what God does not. We can't celebrate what God condemns, but neither can we rejoice in the fate of those who disagree with us. We can't celebrate the fate that awaits those who love darkness and hate the light. So instead, the way of Jesus says, come to the light. And that's the position that we need to take. We need to say, along with the prophet Ezekiel, in pleading for, to wayward Israel, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but perf would prefer that the wicked change his behavior and live. To say with God to those who are running headlong into hell, turn back. Why would you die? And that's the response that the reality of judgment should incite in us. Because too often, because we are concerned about that caricature of being judgmental, we shy away. We say nothing. But that's not loving people. That's not loving in the way that Jesus loves them. The reality in, of judgment should incite in us not a self-righteousness, nor a wish for death or judgment upon any, anyone, but it should cause us to desire earnestly for the salvation of everyone, to plead with those who are far from God. Please, friends, choose to live. Because that's the point. That's why we are here now in this town in this place where there are so many churches and yet there are so many people who do not know or believe the gospel. Who are running headlong into the condemnation that their, their actions have merited. Who need to know that there is a way out of the death that awaits them. So what do we do with all of this? We've seen that Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's equal with the Father. And that he is 
The, he is one with the Father in his actions, and he is one with the Father in his authority to give life, and he is one with the Father in his authority to judge. Jesus is God. Only God can do these things. And this is the Jesus that the Bible speaks of from beginning to end. This is the Jesus of whom all Scripture testifies. And that's something that we'll explore as we conclude our study of John 5. So there's a little preview for next week for y'all. But this is the Jesus that calls us to respond to him. And so how should we? What should we do? And the answer to that question is actually found in a verse that, that we've skipped over a couple of times um, as we've been going through this. But we're going we're gonna to hear it now. And we're going to hear a couple of verses that we've heard before along with it. So listen, listen to verses 21 through 23. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but has assigned all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus, God of gods, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning. He has all authority to give life to whomever he wishes, and all judgment has been assigned to him. He is the one who holds the keys to life and death. And why does he have this authority? Why has it been given to him? It's so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And no one, and no one can honor the Father without honoring the Son. This call to honor is a call to worship. A final, plain, and unmistakable way that Jesus declares his equality with God. For Jesus to make a statement like this, were he not God, would be blasphemous. And those Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him would be absolutely right for wanting to. And in fact, his disciples, were he not God, should have picked up some stones and started chucking them at him right then and there. For no human being is worthy of worship. No created thing is worthy of worship. And yet, here's Jesus calling for that which is reserved only for God. And so, in this passage, rather than shrinking away from the charge that Jesus knew was coming, rather than correcting what could have been a perceived misunderstanding when the Jewish leaders said that they, that they perceived that he was making himself equal equal with the father he doubled down on it and despite what those who tried to discredit jesus might say or write jesus not only claimed to be god he said that worship belonged to him that worshiping the father meant worshiping the son whom the father sent 
And I love how um, Alexander McLaren, who's a 19th century preacher, he said it this way, that no more unmistakable demand for worship, no more emphatic assertion of divinity can be made than lie in these words. To worship Christ does not intercept the honor due to God. To worship the Son is to honor the, is to worship the Father. No man honors the Father who sent him. Um, who does not honor the son whom he has sent. That's, that's the point. That's what we're here for. And as we close tonight, that is ultimately how we need to respond to Jesus' words. Jesus is fully God. He is one with the Father. He is one in his actions and in his authority to give life and to judge. So honor him. Obey him. Worship him with every aspect of your lives in every way imaginable because he is the only one who is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Thank you that he is not some mythical figure or a huckster who claimed to be God but was not, but that he truly is one with you. That he has authority because you granted him that authority. That he is the one that we need, the only one who can save us, the only way through which we can come to you and to worship you and honor you. Father, help us to, to keep that at the center of our, our hearts and our minds this week. Help us to earnestly desire to put aside the things that threaten to distract us, the, the things that, that attempt to divide us, that, that tempt us to say good when we see what is evil happening in the world and, the, and people experience the consequences of their sin. Help us to be compassionate, to call out, to pursue those who are far from you with this good news that you offer that all who hear your voice jesus all who hear your words and believe in the one who sent you will be saved will not experience condemnation but will forever enjoy eternal life and help us to rejoice in that good news that we have received that if we are believers. And to worship you with our whole hearts now as we, as, as we continue our time together. In Jesus' name.